Striving and Thriving is the career development podcast inspiring you to make some bold changes. It's time to sweat the big stuff. Each week, we speak to industry figureheads at different stages of their journey to understand what it takes to successfully manage your career. I'm your host, Laura Johnson, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Mitch Parkins. Mitch is a fellow TMI alumni, a good friend, a great strive and cheerleader. Mitch is genuinely one of the best marketers and best leaders I know. So very excited to share today's episode with you. To get us started, can you tell us a bit about your career background and your current role? Uh, current role, founder and MD of Build Brand Equity, Laura. So marketing for me is all about building brand equity. That's the fun part. And that's what I'm focusing on at the moment. Background, I've worked in wagering pretty much my whole career, which is great and also terrifies me a little bit. So I started out as a proper junior burger at Centibet, I don't know, 15 years ago. The only thing I was good at was changing my title. I changed it like every two months, probably less, until they actually promoted me and I had a proper title. That was a really, really fun five years. It was very, very nuts. I kind of got thrown the keys super early to do lots of cool things and made lots of mistakes. Then I moved on to Sportsbet, which was awesome, really different kind of stage of career development and had a stint up in Brisbane at Ladbroke. So my whole career up until what I'm doing now has been very wagering focused. Nice. Okay. First role though, what made you pick it? Oh, it found me. So I was the type of kid that I didn't want to go to uni. So I deliberately chose to go to McClay College because I was very independent and I didn't feel like I had it in me at the time to do three or four years of study to kind of work out what I wanted to do. I was like, mate, I love sport. I know that. McClay doing an advanced diploma in sports management and marketing. I was like, that's me. I'll figure out the rest later. So I did that course and I think probably two months after the application at Centibet for like junior, junior, junior burger came up. I was like, right, this is me. It's tech, it's sport, it's betting. I loved betting at the time. It was made for me at that moment in my life. And I guess they agreed because they hired me. <laughs> I was pretty nervous in the interview, I think. But yeah, it found me. I'm going to say it found me. I love that. And then over those five years, like what different marketing roles do you have? And what did you love about it when you were in there? Because obviously you've stuck with it. Yeah, so you must have it, was, it. it was awesome. I got really, really lucky. I'm, I'm going to say I had really good people there that believed in me, gave me a heap of responsibility that I probably didn't deserve. So I genuinely started at, at in the most junior position you could. I literally was putting welcome cards on letters and putting them in an envelope and tracking a control group to see what that welcome pack actually contributed to the business's bottom line. I had a boss that drilled into me. He used to say to me all the time, Chris Bowler, he'd say, mate, you can make really good money doing things that other people don't want to do. And at the time, money was a huge driver. And that was just code for, mate, please do all the things that I don't want to do because you'll make my life easier. But if you, if I can get you to believe this, you'll do anything. And I did believe it for quite a while. There's still elements that I do believe about that. I had like, so that was a super junior role. I had affiliate roles. I had the kind of transition to when digital actually got turned on for the industry, which was really cool. I looked after the CRM program, which was phenomenal. I had no idea what I was doing. I had the responsibility of bringing all of the different country managers together 
I think it was eight or nine different languages. There was four product suites. So there was sport, racing, there was five. And there was fixed odds, games, casino, poker. And most of those products had up to 10 VIP levels. So the coolest first thing I did in my career was work out how do I create a script? And clearly I used a lot of uh, relationship management with tech because I couldn't do it to generate dynamic content across all of those languages, across all of those products, across all of those VIP levels where I could just send one email once a week and it literally created personalized content across all of those parameters based on kind of stacks of different underlying business metrics. And that concept, that was in 2011 or something. I don't even think businesses had any, there wasn't, personalization wasn't even a thing. I'd go and talk about that many years later and people were like, that's really cool. I'm like, seriously, mate, it just made sense. It was, what else were we going to do? So I'd speak to all these crazy country managers. They all had their own kind of unique take on the world and what they thought was important in their region. And I had to get all of them to abide by specific timelines to get specific pieces of content translated to me in a certain time so that when I press that red button on a timeline shifted a little bit, but say Wednesday night at about 10 p.m., those thousands of permutations went out without error. And my boss, who used to tell me you could make a lot of money doing things that other people didn't want to do, would give me a thumbs up the next morning because his test email looked good, had no spelling mistakes, and he got different permutations based on different VIP levels that he sat at. That was the keys really got thrown to me then. And after that, once the industry was regulated, I looked after all the brand strategy, media, sponsorship strategies in the Australian market when the business was very much being set up to sell and I was under kind of strict writing orders to make sure that the decisions that I made today would increase the value of the business tomorrow. That was pretty wild. Sounds it. It sounds like yeah. a great journey though. Like got to learn a bit of everything and by the sounds of it, surrounded by pretty good people. Yeah. Get in industries that have a lot of organic growth and they cover up a lot of mistakes and inexperience. That's just fact. I'm sure, I know I made stacks of mistakes, but there was so much organic growth that, you know, as long as the checks and balances were there, you could get away with it because that's what the business commanded. They wanted, they wanted innovation and they wanted you to really push the envelope and that's, that's what we did. It was good fun. We did a lot of firsts during that time, which was, which to me... It's exciting. They're not always, first aren't always necessarily the right thing to do, but certainly when you're trying to pioneer an industry in a country that didn't know what you were talking about, doing things first helped. You know, drives, it just drives a lot of talkability. Yeah. I guess, like, we've talked on a few bits there just around kind of, like, growth and trying to be first and, I guess, just being innovative, like, if I can say the word, bloody hell. What do you think it is that made you successful in that role? Because I think it's a certain personality type that loves that environment, right? That's not for everybody. No, it's not for everybody. I'm challenge-driven. So, yeah, it comes right back to kind of that school environment. You know, like I was often, not always, the naughty kid in the class would get kicked out. You know, the teacher said, essentially, you'll amount to nothing. I was like, oh, bullshit, I'll show you. And I think that the category offered up a lot of challenges, and I love them. I just stare at them, I'm like, Okay, so that's really hard. We can't do that. We'll find a way to do that. And there were stacks of that. And it was like it's like a gold rush, probably not dissimilar to what everyone's experiencing in crypto at the moment. 
there's just an intense rush to grab, to kind of carve out those positions in market. And I just love that. I love competition. It's competition's great. It's good. Feels good to win. And I guess when the scoreboard's ticking over in your favor, that can be addictive. Mm. Yeah, totally get that. Yeah. Okay. So then that brings me on to what you're doing now. You loved it. Why did you leave and what are you doing now? So yeah, I, I do love it and I do still love the game and the work. And just at a point in my life where the product wagering for most people is is super in, you're in control it's really easy and it's something that you have control over for, for a small section of the customer base that don't have control and as someone that really believes in pro-choice like i equally have a choice and i can continue to work in that industry forever or i can try and use all of the phenomenal skills and experience and exposure that i've had through such a dynamic category and try and do something a little bit different in the world. And I've made a big dent in the category. I loved it. It was good. I've done a lot of good things, achieved a lot, met a lot of really phenomenal people. But more importantly, I've, I've been a sponge. And I want to do some other things in my time on this planet than just, you know, create generations of punters or migrate generations of punters to an online platform. It's cool. It's good. The punt's phenomenal. I love it. I don't love it as much as I used to. I just don't want to do it forever. That's fair enough. So you decided to do your own thing during a global pandemic? Yeah. Why, Why not? not? Why not? <laughs> right? Why not? That and, that and a young son as well. Just throw it all in and be like, right, I guess that's your own gamble. Yeah, that, that <laughs> it is a gamble. It's a gambling, like a, it is addictive. Backing yourself in, taking risks. I don't think that's ever not going to be a part of my DNA. And, you know, obviously we, ha- we had a, a quick chat before we came on, but sitting there at the start of that lockdown, just going, okay, I know, thanks to the Marketing Academy, we can touch on that, what I actually want to do with the rest of my life after spending, count not countless years, but a few years just going, what I'm doing now, I like it, it's good, but it's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then figuring out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, but not knowing how to do that, I'm not sure what's worse. Like, Seriously, I get there's a lot of people in life that kind of, they feel that. They know that what they're currently doing isn't what they want to do forever and they sit in that for a really long time. I tell you what, I reckon it's scary once you actually work out what you want to do but you don't know how to do it. It's really scary. 100%. So like, shit, I've ne- like, okay, I'm challenge-driven, yes, but I've always been able to stare down a challenge and work out exactly what I had to do at that moment in time to get to that finish line. and. I don't know exactly what I have to do to get to the finish line that I'm kind of running towards at the moment. I'm having fun working it out. I'm patient. I know it's not going to happen overnight, but it's actually pretty scary. Scary, but incredibly inspiring. Yeah, it's cool. It'll be fun. It'll be worth the the fear and the, the unknown and possibly a lot of additional things that I just don't know that it will come my way. It should be good fun and hard work, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was going to say that. So you've mentioned a couple of times this, like backing yourself and being okay with the unknown and a challenge. Yeah. Why do you think, for some people, that's the scariest thing ever, right? What do you think it is that makes you, like, that's what you get super excited about? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very good question. What is the answer? Why do I get excited about a challenge? They're just fun. <laughs> I like it. 
I just do. That's they, it. <laughs> they, they're just fun. Like genuinely, I would much rather try to do things that haven't been done before than continue to kind of succeed at stuff that's just plug and play. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Bo- that's, that's just boring. It sounds like as well, like that's where you kind of grew up work-wise, if that makes sense, into a place that was already doing it. So I guess once you've seen it pay off so many times, like I said, you, there were mistakes, yeah, but because there were so many payoffs, I guess it's always just been like that's outweighed the negative that could have happened. Yeah, that and that and I've, I've never shied away from working hard. So yeah. like I, I never reached great heights as an athlete as a kid, but the sport that I probably spent the most time trying to get good at was swimming. And that's like a really lonely, it can be a soul destroying sport. Like you're looking at a black line for, you know, 10 sessions a week for hours on end, you know, coming back to Bowles message around getting rich, doing things people don't like swimming teaches you how to stay in the fight. When you are gassed, your legs are screaming, your shoulders are burning you got to keep taking strokes and you, mm. you just have to keep going. And you actually get to a point where you find enjoyment in that. That's part of it. It's a bit statistic, but that's true. <laughs> it's, it's where you're at. <laughs> it's true. It's, actually, it's, it's genuinely true. Going back to your career, obviously, over the years, what do you think yeah. is the best and worst career advice you've had along the way? Best and worst career advice. The best career advice, and it's unproven, because I don't actually know if it'll pay off. The best career advice I had was probably from Sherilyn. So during the Market Academy, Sherilyn shared with us a Japanese concept of Ikigai. Mm. And that model has helped me actually work out what I want to do with the rest of my life. So yeah, it's career advice, but it's also life advice. Like Sherilyn's thing is follow what lights you up, you know, chase your passion. The worst career advice uh, I just probably didn't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, best way. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably just didn't one. listen to it. Uh, there's, there's heaps of bad career advice out there, but I was reading some notes actually in, in our little blue books earlier this morning and Ashton, CEO of Step Change, he, some advice that he gave me at the time was, as humans, we spend a lot of time ridiculous accounting trap. So we spend our time chasing two boxes. One is an achievement box and one is a failure box. And we kind of constantly try and stack that achievement box. And the net-net outcome of chasing that equation is that we often feel like shit. And we're actually stuck in an accounting trap that's not necessarily the scoreboard relevant to us. We're living through the prism of someone else's expectations of our life, what we should be doing, what success should look like for you or me, as opposed to going, actually, what does success look like for me? That career advice, when I read that today, I couldn't believe that he'd given me that three years ago and how much that has stuck with me. Mm. Like genuinely, I read it and I got, I'm getting them again now. I've got chills up the back, all up my back. Because that concept literally just changed how I looked at my life. It literally made me just go, okay, cool. You are getting to a point where there is an awareness that you are just doing what it feels like you should do. You're not actually chasing the challenges that are lighting you up like they used to. They're different. Like they're becoming just another one in that achievement bucket as opposed to yeah, that's an achievement that's relevant to the scoreboard of my life, not 
the success that I kind of was chasing because I thought that that was the right kind of success. I think that's great advice. Yeah, Ashton's a gun. Looking. <laughs> I love that. Going back to your purpose and that you found yeah. and what lights you up, what are you doing? So, okay, so to, I'll answer the question in two parts. So one, obviously the build brand equity piece, I am kind of serving as like dropping GM and marketing roles and helping essentially fill gaps in the market at the moment because there's literally a lot of them. Uh, people are very busy and there isn't kind of the experience on the ground at a marketing fundamentals level. So that's keeping me busy with the intention that in roughly 15 months time, 14 months time, my wife and my son and myself will hit the road for a full year to connect with Indigenous culture, the Indigenous culture of Australia. So without kind of giving you an entire life story because they're boring, I discovered about my Indigenous heritage about three years ago can't say I have a proper chronological timeline on it, but it, it was like a, well, okay, this boy that grew up in Cronulla in a bubble. Like I went into the marketing academy going, please like pop this bubble that I've just lived in. I'm fully aware that it's unhelpful to be in such a bubble and learning about my history was just probably the, the easiest way to actually pop that bubble. And ever since I've found out about my family's history, I've been on a process of, of just learning, asking questions, doing a lot of reading, getting out to Bawarana, which is a phenomenal place. It's just steeped in history and just, you know, doing more of being a sponge, but doing it around a topic that I'm just interested in and I just find it fascinating. And I, as a proud Australian, I look at Australia's history and I just think, wow, like, it's quite scary. It's something that we don't talk about like in a way that we should. We don't have open conversations around it. It's hard and it's ugly and our history is ugly. And as a marketer, I can't escape being a marketer. It's, I'm trained as it now. I've done so much training. I understand marketing fundamentals. Mm. I look at Indigenous culture and I look at the history of, of essentially not a, ignoring that culture and ignoring a lot of the value attached to that culture. And I'm a big foodie, Laura. I love eating. One of the ways that I have learned about Indigenous culture is to consume a lot of Indigenous food. So Bruce Pascoe has a really poignant line in his book, Dark Emu, you can't eat our food if you can't swallow our history. And that really struck a chord with me. So I started to swallow the history and kind of come to terms with Australia and learn, you know, a whole lot that I wasn't taught at school. And like, frankly, just got to a point where I was like, we're just not realizing the value of Australia's history and it's madness and it has to change. And there's so much value. I just saw a giant V and as marketers, we're trained to unearth value. And the more I learned, the more I kind of immerse myself in indigenous culture the more i just went like i have so much to learn but this country has like so much untapped value and that has to change so i'd like to just play a little role in the indigenous agricultural revolution there's just so much that can be done so much value and so much yummy food inside outside like the values is incredible and yeah, I want to 
spend, I'm saying a year because I think my wife needs an end date, an indefinite period of time, traveling, eating, learning, listening, just immersing myself in the culture and hopefully just providing a bit of an insight into essentially what Australia at a macro level is missing and how and why we need to start championing Indigenous agriculture because we need it, period. We need it. It's what's been grown on this country for millennia and I can assure you, as we all know, how we're currently treating the country to feed people far and beyond our shores isn't working and we can change it and we can do better. And I just want to play a little little part, little role. I honestly think that's incredible. And I can't wait to follow your journey because I think that everyone is going to learn so much from what you're doing. Well, yeah, maybe. If it sparks <laughs> if, it, you know, if it sparks a few people just getting curious, job done. Because once you scratch the surface and you taste something or you try something for the first time, you ask questions, you start you know, more than anything, you just realise, oh my goodness, the connection to this country is so strong and I don't know a thing and I just have so much to learn. And the more people that go on that journey, I think the richer our national identity will be. There's just so much value and so much that we need to kind of structurally change to bring that value to the surface and more importantly, create value in doing so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited. Very yeah, excited to follow that journey. Yeah. And to try all the food, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. It's good. I guess on that, right? So this journey that you're going to go on, yeah. um, you're going to learn a lot. But as with every journey, right, there's going to be mistakes, as we've talked about in the first 15 years of your career. Yeah. Can you talk to us about any mistakes that you've made and what you learned from them? <sighs> or how you overcome them, even eat or both? Yeah, I've had mistakes that probably bit me in the ass. Like, I've had heaps. At a macro level, I probably spent the first half of my career like a bull in a china shop. And it wasn't until some really solid mentors who I trusted and obviously had so much respect for just said, mate, you're going to ruin the china shop. You can't, it's not sustainable. You can't keep running around smashing plates. There's going to be no more plates here. And in fact, you're going to ruin all the stands you're going to knock down the walls. And I was like, I appreciate that analogy. I'm now scared. Like, I don't want to be someone that is like a bull in a china shop. And they're like, good. This is kind of step one. Of the, you've acknowledged you've got a problem. Great. <laughs> um, and I guess tried to pull me through a transition between being a task-orientated leader to a people-orientated leader. Mm. And uh, that's a journey that I don't think ever ends. And I've made heaps of mistakes kind of swinging back to that task mode or not actually realizing what the challenge I was dealing with at a given moment in time was. So for context, like without naming names, because it's not helpful to anyone, I've had been in leadership roles where people that were in my team, we just didn't agree on things. And I kind of thought that it was my job to constantly get them to see the same way as me, which is just absurd. Like, It doesn't matter what context is shared. If they have a different opinion, that's fine. That's healthy. In fact, I would now be like, okay, so we've just gone around and done a strategy session and everyone agrees. There's a problem. We've got problems here. Someone's not talking. A few people aren't talking. What are we missing? Because seriously, 
without disagreement, dialogue, we're not going to get to the best outcome. And at those moments in my to- in my career, I think upon reflection, I saw those differences in opinion as challenges of my identity, which they f- categorically weren't. That person just held a strong opinion, just like I do all the time on heaps of things. And I, for whatever reason, couldn't get my head around the fact that I wasn't going to change their mind. They didn't want to have their mind changed and they were really comfortable with their opinion. They just wanted to be heard. That's it. But in the same way that I did. And you've had your part. I've listened. These are all the things I've heard. Have I missed anything? And vice versa. We're going to have to agree to disagree respectfully, and that's okay. You know, we might go left, we might go right. As long as everything's on the table and everyone feels safe to share everything, then you'll get to where you need to go to. But that mistake really bit me in the ass because that person was super influential, like super influential. And I just didn't make their life at work as easy as I could have. And they were terrific. Like, don't get me wrong, had a great relationship for the most part, mm. but around certain issues, I just couldn't let it go. That's just madness. It's crazy. So bad. But this person, and he'll know I'm talking about him now, he always used to say sometimes the best gifts in life come badly wrapped. And <laughs> I like I, that. I already knew that before I met him. But it's so true. It's mm. so true. Like I got the ask from Senator as a young super, super arrogant, just, you know, that bull in the china shop that everything I touched was good and whatever. I thought I was killing it. That was the best thing that could have happened to me, the best thing, because it helped me realise that when things are good, they're never as good as you think they are. Like the whole Steve War adage, when things are bad, they're never as bad as they feel. Like our job is to navigate that. So that was good. That was a good lesson. (laughs) That was That's one that's stuck because... If I could turn back time on that one, I really would because mm. it just was crap leadership, frankly. <laughs> the two-word summary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You touched on mentoring in there. What oh. value have you seen from mentors that you've had throughout your career? Well, they pop your bubble. So they just they expand your capacity to evaluate the world, situations, yourself. As diverse as the world is, and as great as kind of digital is allowing us to learn about different cultures and worlds, your best friend probably has the same educational status. Their parents probably grew up in the same country and you both probably have equal or similar opinions on the price of petrol. It's either really important or it's really not. And mentoring from a business sense helps get you out of your bubble. It just, I think there's a great balance of mentoring in an organization and externally. And I think certainly for me, having spent a really long time in one category, I needed mentoring from outside the category to just become a bit more wealthy. Yeah. It's invaluable. Like it's, and it's not just mentor, like, you know, you will have covered this a thousand times, but mentoring comes in so many different shapes and sizes. Totally. You know, you can get mentored from anyone. If you're open to it. Yeah, I think that's it. It's being there. And it's exactly what you just said there about being like getting someone from outside your industry. So knowing full well that they're going to have a totally different take on something, but seeing how healthy and how amazing that is 
rather than seeing it as challenging or seeing it as unhelpful or any of those other things, right? And I think sometimes that that little bit and that nuance comes with age a little bit too. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. I find that fascinating. All right. I'm going to ask you two more questions time-wise. What do you think's made you successful? Define success. <laughs> I was waiting for that as a result. <laughs> I think if you look at, right, no, like seriously, then we'll do it this way. You actually know what your purpose is, right? How many people have no fucking clue what their purpose is? And you, you are so driven and you've got this great purpose and you're doing something about it. Not only do you know what it is, you're willing to gamble and take a risk and do all those other things. Like, I think that's incredible. And for me, I think that looks like success. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I sat in. I sat in years of going. Mm, like I sat in years of uncomfortability, knowing that what I was doing wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And I guess I saw it as a challenge to work out. Okay, cool, mate. That's great. You can keep saying this isn't what you want to do forever, or you can actually f- figure it out. And when I went into the academy, that was. I think that was really the only goal I had was to kind of pop that bubble and use the exposure to everything that was coming at us to work out there has to be an answer. You can't possibly spend the next 40 years of your career just going, not going to do this forever and be old and in a rocking chair and doing it forever. Yeah, I guess I saw it as a challenge, Laura, to be honest. (laughs) Love it. I get that. Uh, Okay, last question. Who else's career story would you like to hear? Nikki. Nikki Bryson. I love spending time with Nikki. I'm catching up with her tomorrow. I'd yeah, love to hear her career story. Want to know more about how to get ahead? Be sure to check out striving.io for career development tools and mentorships to guide you through. Striving and thriving. 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 Striving and thriving.